If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Coming up on this episode of The Box of Oddities, the owls are not what they seem. And then a mysterious sound that confounded scientists for years. The Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we talk about it. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, have you guys ever almost been asphyxiated in a cheesecake factory? Because <laughs> we almost were, and it was no fault of the cheesecake factory. No, we uh, very spontaneously decided, all right, we don't want to cook, so we're going to scootle across the way and have some cheesecake factory. I love their brown bread. Don't shame me. We get there, and after waiting for like, I don't know, half an hour for a table, they seat us, and they seat us right next to a person who apparently bathed in a bottle of uh, one of those knockoff perfumes that you find in the bargain bin at a Walgreens. Yeah, it was very surplus and salvage body fantasies yes. kind of situation. And it wasn't that it the smell itself was the worst. I mean, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. But... It was the combination of it being not good Mm -hmm. and so, so much of it. I could taste it. It got into my sinus passages and I could taste it. It was awful. We had to. And this is how bad it was. We had to request that we be moved. And if you know anything about me, that's like my worst nightmare. Oh, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. It's too confrontational for yeah, me. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I was getting a severe headache. So we uh, we asked our server if we could find a different table. And we're fine if we have to wait a little bit longer. And she takes us to the front desk. And the lady at the front desk looked at her and went, another perfume victim. So we weren't the only ones. Yeah, it was pretty easy to spot where they were sitting because there was like a five foot parameter around them. <laughs> so it, like a, it's like a fragrance no fly zone. Something like that. It's terrible. Remember what the Queer Eye guys said? Spray, Spray stay, and, and walk, walk away. away. But we did have a good time, although Kat ate an entire bowl of butter. It didn't appear that way to the server. No, no, because what. I didn't want any bread initially before the meal because I didn't want to ruin my appetite. And Kat ate an entire loaf of bread and uh, a bowl of butter. And then she took some crumbs of bread and sprinkled it on my plate to make it look like I had participated yeah. in the butter consumption. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think that's unusual. I think a lot of people do that. It's kind of a dairy product decoy ploy. Wow. That was a mouthful. Well, I could say it because I, it, my mouth wasn't full of butter because <laughs> you ate it all, you see, is what I... Yeah, I did. Yeah, you yeah. did. I love that brown bread. All right, let me grab a sip of coffee here and then I've got a story for you. Hang on. Before I start, I just wanted to remind you that the owls are not what they seem. Okay, good, noted. There was a Colorado-based computer programmer. His name was Jim, and he encountered a chilling, memorable event on a routine drive to his home from work. Has he had more psychotic episodes than Twin Peaks? Sorry, that was a line from Ted Lasso, which we started watching last night. It was late, and the night was very, very dark. The sky peppered with stars. The air was crisp. Jim's drive home took him along a secluded stretch of rural highway, okay. surrounded by woods on both sides. Congratulations on your pronunciation of rural, by the way. Thank you. I work hard on that one. As he rounded a bend in the road, his headlights picked up an ominous figure standing in the middle of the road. Oh. He slowed down, assuming that it was a deer or some other kind of wildlife that's common to the area. In Maine, we had to always keep our eyes open for deer and moose mm -hmm. because I tell you what, people get killed every year by hitting moose. Yeah, it's serious. It's like putting a piano on a small tripod and then driving into the tripod. It lands right on you. As he approached, however, he realized that this was not the case. Perched on the road was an enormous owl. Ooh. He said it stood about four feet tall. What? Its round, glassy eyes caught the glare of the car's headlights, and it reflected an eerie glow that seemed to penetrate Jim's very being. Uh... Okay. The owl didn't flinch as Jim brought his car to a halt just a few yards away. It maintained an unwavering gaze, its eyes locked onto Jim with an intensity that he recalled as unnerving. Just the sheer size of the creature would have unnerved me, and it was unlike anything or any owl that he had ever seen. Well, yeah, four feet tall? Yeah. I don't, I don't know about and that. Its composure in the face of a full-sized car was equally disconcerting. I mean, the thing didn't even flinch mm. as he came screeching to a halt just yards away from this. After what seemed like an eternity, the owl slowly spread its wings and took off, flying slowly and gracefully into the sky, disappearing into the night. Jim, after he gathered his wits about him, I'm sure, uh, continued his journey, his mind Wrestling with that peculiar encounter, as he drove on, something else very strange happened. He saw something up ahead, and at first he dismissed it as probably headlights from an oncoming car or a reflection of that. However, the lights began to ascend, hovering, and then darting away in different directions at high speed. He knew this wasn't an ordinary occurrence. Jim pulled over and got out of his car to get a better look. He saw a brightly illuminated object performing aerial maneuvers that defied conventional aircraft capabilities. It moved silently, zipping across the night sky before shooting upward and disappearing entirely. Now, the events of this evening, first the appearance of this giant owl, then almost immediately followed by the inexplicable aerial display, it left Jim Scratch in his head. Sure. He felt a strange sense of connection between the two experiences a sense of synchronicity that was hard for him to ignore. While he found no concrete explanations for what he had witnessed, the experience profoundly affected him and sparked a newfound curiosity about the mysteries of the universe and the enigma of UFOs. Not just 
neat owls? This is a perplexing pattern that's emerged among UFO witnesses and self-proclaimed abductees. Owls the, and then UFOs? Yes. Interesting. The unanticipated presence of owls just before or after some sort of a UFO encounter. The recurring connection between these mysterious creatures and UFO encounters is fascinating. It spawned an entire book uh, written by a guy named Mike Cleland. And the book is called The Messengers, Owls, Synchronicity, and the UFO Abductee. Mm. It's a book worth reading. Cleland's book provides a plethora of accounts from individuals who reported seeing owls before, during, or after what they later described as a UFO encounter. For instance, Jim. Also, Sarah. Sarah is an Australian school teacher living in an outback town. She found herself ensnared in a series of mysterious and very unnerving events that unfolded over a period of seven months. This just wasn't one isolated event. She saw multiple owls? She saw multiple owls and UFOs. Her life in the small town was tranquil. She's largely removed from the bustle and the clamor of the city. However, her peaceful existence took a very strange turn one clear starlit night. Sarah had always been interested in astronomy, and she'd often spend her late nights gazing into the night, the night sky from her backyard. I, I can only imagine how clear the night sky must be from the outback mm. in Australia. So little light pollution. One night, while she was engaged in her stargazing routine, she noticed an unusual glow near the horizon. It was a series of pulsating lights, strange and unlike anything that she had ever seen before. The lights moved erratically and in ways that defied, once again, conventional aircraft capabilities. As she was watching this spectacle, she described it as an eerie hush falling over the landscape. And that's when she noticed them. The owls. Not just one or two, but a group of them. Their large bodies perched ominously on the branches of a nearby tree. They were larger than any owls that she had ever seen before. They weren't four feet tall, right? but they were much larger than a conventional owl would be. Their eyes glowed with an intense hue under the uh, moonlight. She said it was almost hypnotic. The owls just sat there silently and stared at her with an unsettling intensity, their eyes reflecting those strange lights along the horizon. It felt to Sarah like... The owls and the unexplained aerial phenomena were somehow connected. Mm -hmm. These animals, did, they didn't flinch. Their gaze was unwavering, even as the lights in the sky grew brighter and closer. So this is a surreal event. And certainly Sarah felt overwhelmed and she decided to call it a night. Yeah, I, yeah I'm going to scootle inside. Thanks. Yeah, and lock all the doors and pull the drapes. Bye, owls. Hoping that the morning would bring a little bit more clarity that uh, what she saw might make a little bit more sense. Mm. But the strangeness didn't end there. When she woke up, she had no recollection of going to bed. What's more, her clock revealed an unexplained two-hour gap in her memory from the previous night. Essentially, what she's saying is that she got kind of freaked out by what she saw, so she went into her house, and the next thing she remembers is waking up in bed. She doesn't remember going to bed, okay. and there were two hours that had disappeared from her timeline. If she doesn't remember going to bed, mm -hmm. how would she know how many hours were? She remembered what time it was when she went into the house, and then the next thing she remembered, she woke up in bed, and it was two hours later, and she doesn't remember any oh, of it. Oh, okay. So this experience was understandably terrifying to Sarah, yet she found herself 
drawn into this mystery. Well, yeah, owls. She started seeking answers to the correlation between the presence of owls and the bizarre lights in the sky. The events profoundly changed her life, and it prompted her to delve deeper into the enigma of UFOs and their potential connection to the natural world. Over a period of months, she had several similar sightings, but there has been no concrete understanding of why owls show up in many cases when there are UFO sightings. What are, what's the connection there? Then there's this account, Robert, a retired police officer from a small town in New Mexico. He had a reputation for his grounded nature and no-nonsense approach to life. However... One late night drive changed his perspective in a way that he never could have anticipated. Okay. It was a calm, clear night, and Robert was returning home from a visit to a neighboring town. His route took him down a long, isolated stretch of highway, surrounded on either side by vast expanses of desert and very sparse vegetation. The only illumination that he could see came from the car headlights and the moon overhead. It was a pretty, pretty dark night. As he was driving... A large figure emerged in the middle of the road. Now, Robert's a cop, so he's experienced in nighttime driving. So he slowed his vehicle down, anticipating, you know, a coyote or something that you would see, maybe even another deer. Mm -hmm. But as he approached, he realized it was an owl. Huh. And it was unusually large. He estimated somewhere in the neighborhood of four feet tall. Was it a burrowing owl? A what owl? A burrowing owl. Does it burrow? No, why? He said its size and stature was unlike any bird that he'd ever seen well, in that region. Of course, it's almost as tall as my mom. <laughs> that's, that's not untrue. <laughs> the owl stood resolute in the beam of the headlights and kind of stared him down. It met his gaze with large, luminescent eyes. Despite his car's engine's hum, the owl seemed very unfazed by this, just maintained an eerie, calm composure, just sitting there on the road, staring Robert down. Now, are any of these people talking about, like, what kind of owls these look like? Like, is it a great horned owl? Is it a boreal owl? Is it a barn owl? What kind of owl are we talking here? Could it just be bird? They specifically said owl. All right. Just seems kind of vague. It After, seems disrespectful is all I'm saying uh -huh. is that you could be like, it was a northern pygmy owl, you know, or some shit like that. <laughs> Look, if I see a four foot owl, I'm not going to drag out my bird guide and uh, determine exactly what species it is. I'm going to turn my vehicle around and peel rubber, as the kids say. Do the kids say that? The youngsters do. Right before they go to the sock hop. Get them a malt. <laughs> After a moment that felt like hours, the owl extended its massive wings and took flight. He said that these, the wingspan appeared to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, of six to eight feet. Uh, it was wider than the vehicle that he was in. Yeah. As he looked on, his attention was diverted by a sudden bright flash of light on the periphery of his vision. I don't think there's much that could divert my attention from a six foot wide owl. I hear you. But it was such a bright flash, it caught his attention and he turned to locate the source. Robert was met with the sight of a glowing disc shaped object hovering motionlessly in the night sky. It emitted a radiant light. Its intensity was unlike any aircraft that Robert had ever seen in his extensive law enforcement experience. It hovered for a few moments before shooting off into the distance at a seemingly impossible speed, leaving nothing but the dark, star-filled sky behind. 
The startling appearance of a massive owl followed by the sight of a mysterious flying object left Robert in a state of bewilderment. Both of them really were mysterious flying objects. He felt an inexplicable link once again to those two events, a synchronicity that went beyond mere coincidence. It forced Robert to question his understanding about the world, opening up a brand new curiosity about the UFO phenomenon and its connection to giant owls. Yeah. Now, the exact connection between the owls and UFO sightings remains enigmatic. Sure. Largely existing in the realm of speculation and anecdotal evidence. It's interesting. I had just read this book when we were rewatching Twin Peaks Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, and I had forgotten the whole the owls are not what they seem thing from Twin Peaks. And I'm wondering if if that was somehow inspired by these types of stories. So there have been multiple stories, you said, where there was the connection between weird giant owls and UFO. but. The, no no one happened to get pictures of the giant owls? Not that I'm aware of, but uh, I did come across this. And this, I think, could explain why they describe them as owls. Okay. This is a real picture of barn owls. Look at that picture. I love them. They look like the classic gray aliens, don't they? <laughs> well, they're tiny, though. The, these guys are. But don't you see the similarity between the the drawings, the artists' renditions of, like, the grays? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if maybe it's a case of mistaken identity. But one popular theory is the concept of screen memories. A screen memory in the context of a UFO encounter, is a physiological mechanism in which an individual's mind masks traumatic or extraordinary events with a more ordinary one. Often still an unusual experience, but a little more common. It helps the brain cope. Yeah, like your your brain just kind of filling in the gaps. I don't know what this is. Here's what it might be. The term was first used in this context by Bud Hopkins, a renowned UFO researcher who focused extensively on alleged abduction experiences. Now, in the case of owl-UFO connections, the theory is that, quote, aliens or extraterrestrial beings supposedly involved in these encounters could be mistaken for giant owls or they could be projecting an image of an owl into the minds of the human observer. This could serve to either minimize the trauma or confusion or mask their presence or facilitate some unknown aspect of their encounter. Uh Uh-huh. It's theorized that owls make for a particularly effective screen memory because of their unique characteristics. Their nocturnal nature aligns with the fact that many UFO encounters happen at night. Their forward-facing eyes, unusual for birds, can reflect light in a way that gives them an eerie, otherworldly glow. They're also relatively common, so while an observer might find a large or oddly shaped owl notable they're less likely to dismiss the experience as entirely impossible or hallucinatory. Like, what the hell was I drinking? I don't know, four-foot owl? I love that theory. It's fascinating, and it adds an extra layer to the mystery of the UFO-owl connection, however speculative it might be. To date, there is no definitive scientific evidence to prove the existence of screen memories as they relate to UFO encounters. Wow, that's weird. Because it's so mysterious. <laughs> the owl is a potent symbol across diverse cultures, though. It represents wisdom, death, and mystery, amongst other things. In the realm of the UFO phenomenon, the owl could serve as an archetype 
symbolizing the unknown or transformative experience. The owl's intense stare and nocturnal nature may mirror the unsettling enigmatic characteristics of the UFO encounter itself. I um, I find this fascinating. I also love so much that you're like, we can't prove that screen projection is something that's happening with these owls uh, related to UFOs. It's like saying, so... We can't prove that the chupacabra loves lemonade, but we're pretty sure. Hey, the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. We don't have you all can't the answers. Just say that. Yeah, and- I just did. <laughs> <laughs> now, cognitive bias can also play a significant role. I'm trying to be fair and balanced here. Okay? okay, okay, okay. People tend to notice and remember events confirming their existing beliefs. Sure. And ignore contradic- uh, contradicting information. So individuals who believe in UFOs are more likely to recall seeing owls in connection with a UFO experience. Although that wasn't the case with Robert, the law enforcement guy. He was thought of as a pretty grounded, uh, non-UFO kind of dude. Right. And he walked away from it going... Whoa. <laughs> now, we've talked about this. We've, we've mentioned this in the past, and it's a good example of cognitive bias or cognitive dissonance. The story about uh, the Europeans. When Europeans first arrived in the Americas, the indigenous peoples were so unfamiliar with large sailing ships that they could not perceive them, even as they sat visibly offshore. Instead, they could only see the ripples on the ocean's surface created by the ship's movement, but not the ships themselves. The claim is that their minds couldn't process such an alien presence, lacking a prior context or reference for such objects. But again, this is that's just a theory. It's yeah, not it's, No, it's a theory. Something that's ever been shown to be true or If we just talked about stuff that's proven to be true, it wouldn't be a very mysterious podcast. It wouldn't be that odd. That's not true. The Dancing Plague of 1518 is very odd, and that absolutely happened. Do we have proof of that? Yes. And what proof is that? There's a video I saw. <laughs> From the 1500s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they recorded it on their wood-burning iPhones. Regardless, I can't help but notice the similarities of this phenomenon and the Mothman eyewitness encounters. <clears throat> Yeah, I keep going back to Mothman. I've not done a full episode on Mothman, but a lot of things seem to point back to that. The Mothman, a cryptid legend originating from Port Pleasant, West Virginia in the 1960s, is described as a large winged creature with glowing eyes. Mm. Sightings of this entity were often reported in conjunction with tragic events leading to the belief that the Mothman is an omen of impending disaster. Similar to the owl UFO encounters, the Mothman sightings involve a cryptid-like creature that appears to observers shortly before, during, or after unusual events or experiences. Both phenomena are characterized by the appearance of unusually large winged creatures with intense glowing eyes. In addition, both phenomena often involve a sense of dread or foreboding experienced by the observers. Mm. And I can't help but think that that's unavoidable when you're standing face to face with a four foot owl. Yeah, that feels ominous. Also, they have an uncanny sense of interconnectedness between the creature sightings and the subsequent unexplained event. One could theorize that both the owl UFO and Mothman phenomena (laughs) could be manifestations of screen memories where the mind of an observer replaces a potentially traumatic or inexplicable experience with a more familiar but still unsettling image. In this case, large, eerie birds 
<laughs> Both the owl and the mothman could serve as archetypal symbols related to change, transformation, or forewarning. Owls are often seen as owls are often seen as symbols of wisdom or messengers. Right. In various cultures, mothman due to its association with disasters, could be a harbinger or a warning sign. A messenger in its own right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the strange connection of owls and the UFO phenomena opens up a door into a realm of experiences that does challenge our understanding of the natural world around the cosmos. And I find this particularly unsettling because I really don't see a connection there. And yet, Many, many people have had that, and it just kind of feeds that fear of the unknown in me. Like, what the fuck's going on here? Right. As we continue to look to the skies for answers, we should remember to look closer to home. For sometimes, the key to understanding the cosmos lies not just in the far reaches of space, but in the eyes of an owl on a quiet country road. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, my reference material, Mike Cleland's book, The Messengers, Owls, Synchronicity, and UFO Abductees. Also, Intruders, The Incredible Visitations at Copley Woods by Bud Hopkins. The owls are not what they seem. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. Today we pay homage to Jacques de Vauconçon, a 16th century unsung hero. In a time where your neighbors might be beheading you for heresy, Jacques was busy bringing the future of fast food automation to life. He must have thought, why have a living, breathing, quacking duck when you can have a metallic, grain-eating, waste-excreting one? And so, thanks to Jacques, we got the Digesting Duck, a gold-plated mechanical fowl known for its three-course meals of grain, grain, and you guessed it, grain. This contraption was less duck a l'orange and more duck a la Rube Goldberg. The bird's unique talent? Eating food and then moments later, presenting you with an impressive, shall we say, end product. The automation was truly the robotic embodiment of the phrase, you are what you eat. It may not have flown, swum, or even quacked like a duck, but boy, did it poop like a duck. Truly a marvel of its time. So hats off to Jacques for making the phrase, eat like a bird, take on a whole new meaning. Lindsay sent us a message. Oh my God, my first boo effect. I was so glad I finally found Detroit style pizza in OKC. (laughs) And I immediately made plans for Monday to have my brother over for dinner. My brother's on the spectrum and loves pizza. Stop. He loves cheese pizza. He's always down for trying a new pizza place or a new type of pizza, as long as it's only sauce and cheese. I was so excited, in fact, that I missed one glaring problem. See, bro has a specific method for eating pizza. Oh? He uses a fork to eat the melted cheese off the top and then sprinkles Parmesan on top of the sauce and then picks it up and finishes his slice. That actually sounds delicious. <laughs> he has many other qualities that prove he's not a serial killer, I promise. <laughs> but Detroit-style pizza is sauce on top. He just looked at me like, wait, how am I supposed to eat this? <laughs> he made a valiant effort on a slice or two, but I bet he hit Taco Bell on the way home. <laughs> I really liked it. Tuesday morning, I'm catching up on Boo, and bam! cat and her Detroit style pizza. Love you guys so much. It's gross. And my dream of going to Disney World and running into you guys on Tom Sawyer's Island will stay alive no matter where you live. Love, Lindsay. Lindsay! Does Lindsay live in the Orlando area? I don't know. We could organize a meetup on Tom Sawyer's Island before we go, before we leave. (laughs) I can't get you to commit to lunch. (laughs) That's With everything going on. That's way too much to ask of me right now. (laughs) 
Mr. Mac writes, uh, Hello, fabtabulous freaks. I fell an episode behind this week, so as I was doing my one day of actual work a week delivering kegs, I was fortunate to have two new episodes to listen to. Awesome sauce. My very first thought after Kat started talking about pizzas was, quote, she's going to talk about Detroit-style pizza. Mm. And like a beer in caffeine-fueled apprentice oracle of Apollo, I called that shit. (laughs) So why would I make such a prediction? It wasn't because I'm a Detroit native and miss Buddy's Pizza so very much. No, it was because my dinner lady night was a Detroit-style pizza from a place that I've wanted to try for months. It was delicious, even if it wasn't Buddy's. Funny enough, while I was chatting with the owner of the place that I went to last night, he was telling me about a vaguely Japanese Detroit-style-inspired pizza place that opened up in Seattle called Kobo Pizza. Oh. So I'm going to have to go and check that out in the next couple of weeks. Yes, please. I do like kimchi, but on pizza? I'll try it. Kylie wrote us, Hi again, I was listening to Box 549, and it was mentioned that you can trap witches and demons in shoes because once they go in, they can't back up. Now I have to tell you about an equally ridiculous method for protecting (laughs) yourself against a ragaroo. Just some background. A ragaroo is like Louisiana's version of a werewolf. Mm. There's a horrifying replica of it at the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans that would scare the bejesus out of me as a child. I have a memory of someone telling me that if I didn't behave, it would crawl through my window in the middle of the night, drag me back to the swamp and eat me. Yeah. I guess it worked because I was a pretty well-behaved child. (laughs) Anywho, turns out it's pretty simple to protect yourself and your home from a ragaroo. Just line up 13 grains of rice on your windowsill When the ragaroo comes to get you in the night, it will see the grains of rice and stop to count them. However, ragaroos can't count past 12. Why can't they count to 13? No idea. Maybe it's because it's an unlucky number. Or maybe because the Louisiana educational system never intervened in the (laughs) ragaroo's early childhood development. Either way, the ragaroo gets frustrated and leaves without taking anyone for dinner. Wow. Voila. Now your home is ragaroo proof. Who made that up? Ragaproof. Ragaproof. Also, Kylie sent the photo of the <laughs> ragaroo replica, and it is, in fact, terrifying. But wearing some snazzy overalls. Yeah, he's got distressed jeans on, it looks I like. I like that. That is one fashionable ragaroo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, by the way. It's fashionable. Repeat after me. Fa- sh- <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. 
Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Did you know that the curator was almost named Little Dingo the Dog-Faced Boy instead? Dodged a bullet there, huh? This is the Box of Oddities. According to the U.S. Department of Commerce, the mission of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or the NOAA, is to provide weather forecasts, storm warnings, climate monitoring to fishery management, coastal restoration, and the supporting of maritime commerce. It was formed in 1970 as a combination of the United States Coast and Geodetic Survey, the United States Commission of Fish and Fisheries, and the United States Weather Bureau. The NOAA uses several technologies to monitor underwater acoustics, sound buoys, cabled and autonomous hydrophones, and the hydrophone detects acoustic signals under the water. Most are based on a special property of certain ceramics that produce a small electrical current when subjected to changes in underwater pressure. Hmm. Hydrophones measure ocean sounds with great precision. While a single hydrophone can record sounds from any direction, several hydrophones simultaneously positioned in an array, often thousands of miles apart, result in signals that can be manipulated to listen with greater sensitivity than a single device. They they kind of triangulate the sound. I was just going to say that. Yeah. These listening devices have been employed for decades, initially used to help detect submarines during wartime. And in a sad note, that's the technology that was used that heard the submarine imploding over the Titanic wreck site this past week. Mm. Yeah, I wondered if this topic was going to be too soon because it is very Mm. deep sea-y. That whole situation is just terrible and terrifying. Yeah. Robert Zayek, NOAA PMEL research oceanographer and scientist, says the ambient sound field is dominated by the sounds of earthquakes, both near and far, as well as the distinctive moan of baleen whales and perhaps the clamor of a Category 4 typhoon that just happened to pass overhead. Mm. In 1997, researchers listening for underwater volcanic activity in the Southern Pacific recorded a strange powerful, and extremely loud sound. The sound source was roughly triangulated to 50 degrees south, 100 degrees west, to a remote point in the South Pacific, west of the southern tip of South America. All right. Emanating from this point off the southern coast of Chile was the loudest unidentified underwater sound ever recorded. Detected by hydrophones, 5,000 miles apart. What? It lasted for one minute and was never heard again. Here we go. That is the sound 
of the bloop. Wow. And it's sped up times 16. And often you'll hear it sped up times 16 because no one's going to sit and listen to a weird bloop sound for a whole minute. And because it's such a low frequency, it's really hard to register when you're listening to it for a minute what's actually happening. So that's the bloop. And we don't know what that is. We've never determined what that is. We have. Oh, we have. Yeah, I'm getting to that. (laughs) Okay. Within minutes of it being recorded, according to Dr. Christopher Fox, chief scientist of the Acoustic Monitoring Program of NOAA, within minutes, everyone in the room was listening to the bloop. And of course, theories were being traded about. A lot caught on hydrophones uh, are earthquakes, Rain, you can hear rain hitting the surface of the water. It kind of sounds like rain hitting glass. Wow. Shipping traffic, and of course, animals. Dr. Fox said, I took it to the very classified innards of the United States Navy intelligence, thinking that it was a sound potentially man-made, some sort of secret underwater project, Mm. but it wasn't theirs. So many people landed on the theory that the sound was of an animal origin. Or an alien. It's a secret underwater alien base. Some people did think it was extraterrestrial. One of these times I'm going to be right. Mm, We can all hope. Now, of course, animal noise, it's something you hear a lot of in the ocean. Whale vocalizations, sea lions barking, dolphin chirps, fish making fish noises, etc. But not everyone liked this theory, and for good reason. Blue whales make a sound. These noises are known as sirens, and they can reach up to 188 decibels, which is louder than a jet engine or a grenade explosion. They're really loud. And though blue whales still hold the title for largest animal, their calls have been trumped by another aquatic mammal, the sperm whale. Yeah. They can emit a sound that soars to 230 decibels. I think I did a, an episode on how if you're too close to a sperm whale, when it makes a noise, it can actually rupture your eardrums. Yeah, it'll just like explode your head. Yeah, it's like standing 20 feet away from a jet engine. It's insane. But even with that ginormous groan, the bloop outbloops them. Ooh. This sound was many more times louder than the loudest underwater animal we know of, leading to some not quite as serious speculations that the sound might have been emitted by a very large, still undiscovered marine mammal. They would come to call this mysterious marine cryptid the bloop after the sound. You get it. Now, this uh, mammal that they have uh, created measured between 77 meters to 215 meters long. Oh, my God. And its teeth, they speculated, would be nearly the length of a human arm. Okay, terrifying. (laughs) I'm never going back in the ocean. As bloop fandom grew, they determined that the bloop's frontal part of the body is large and similar in shape to a shark, but its behind tail gets like the the part in the back gets thinner and it's more like a stingray. And this is all, all of this speculation is gleaned just by acoustic evidence. Just because it's a big sound Mm. that some people wanted to believe came from an animal. So therefore it must be a big animal. Okay. 
There were even theories about how the bloop was a carnivore, unlike, you know, the the largest whales. And the bloop must be related to the megalodon. Yeah, I was going to say maybe it's a uh, Loch Ness kind of thing where it's a um, creature that has survived from the time when dinosaurs roamed the oceans. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's not just not what happened. Wired.co.uk spoke to the NOAA and Oregon State University seismologist Robert Zayek. And he said, what has led to a lot of the misperception of the animal origin sound of the bloop is how it's often played back. Remember, we talked about how it's played at 16 times its normal speed. And at 16 times, it sounds kind of like a sound that an animal might make, an animal vocalization. But it's very, very unlikely that the low-frequency, minute-long sound that is actually what happened came from an animal. Unless it was a really big animal. Right. Like miles long Mm. and of alien origin. Of course, the longer that something is unknown, the more theories persist. Speculations ranging from sea monsters to extraterrestrial life. However, in 2002, scientists determined that they had solved the mystery. The bloop, they said, was most likely not caused by extraterrestrials or sea monsters or even clandestine military operations, but the cracking of icebergs in the Southern Ocean. This conclusion was reached after analyzing data from underwater microphones and comparing the sound to recordings of known ice quakes. That is nowhere near as exciting as a creature with human arm-long teeth. I know, honey. Well, it was fun while it lasted. I know. I tried to drag that part out for you. I appreciate you. Yeah, well. It was confirmed that the bloop signals, frequencies, and duration characteristics were identical to those of icequake signals recorded by the NOAA off Antarctica. Zayek further explained that the acoustic survey of Bransfield Strait and Drake Passage were conducted from 2005 to 2010, and they revealed that ice breaking and cracking was the dominant source of natural sound in the Southern Ocean. And there are tens of thousands of yearly ice quakes created by ice melting, cracking, and then caving into the ocean. Hmm. Literally, this was probably a huge piece of ice blooping into the ocean. Bloop. You look so sad now. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I thought finally you were going to tell me that Mm -hmm. you, you believe Do you want to see a picture of what the bloop monster was speculated to look like? Yes. Of course you do. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. I know. We can hope that maybe there's an actual bloop monster out there. And I have no doubt that at some point they will find either the remains of a giant sea animal Mm -hmm. or an still existing sea animal. And they will name it the bloop after this event. Well, that's something, I guess. (laughs) I got my information from fandom, from cryptids fandom, wired.com.uk, Monterey Bay Aquarium, the NOAA website, and the Atlantic. Well, it was still pretty interesting stuff. (laughs) It was a mystery for a while there. It was. Oh, we mentioned the Friends slash Freak parody Mm t-shirt that uh, we were designing and that it wasn't quite ready yet, but... After we produced the episode, the last episode where we talked about it, you sat there and finished it, and it's available now on our uh, on our merch site. It is. You know, it looks like the Friends logo, but it says Freaks. 
I think it's kind of cool because it was my idea. Mm, it was a very good idea. Thanks. Super smart. Theboxofoddities.com. It's your source for merch. It's also the portal to the Order of Freaks and the Inner Circle if you want to support the program. Or not, it's up to you. Right, it's totally up yeah. to you. Theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2023 All rights reserved history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts hello everyone stuck here and i'm gabby And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.